0: about audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the show where we talk about audiology and your experiences, not just hearing tests and hearing aids and audiograms and all of that, but your experience and how it affects your life, either to have a hearing loss, have a child who is deaf or hard of hearing, whether you're a professional or you are on the side of the family or the patient. You are welcome here, and I'm so excited to have you as a listener of the show. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Janet Dujors, who is the Executive Director of Hands and Voices, an organization that is so closely aligned to my mission, and I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to work with Hands and Voices chapters in a couple of states. And I am excited to introduce you and learn all about you and get advice from you. So welcome to the show, Janet
1: thank you so much for having me and like my husband always said i've never met a microphone i didn't like and so i'm really happy to be here
0: today to talk about my story yeah i feel the same i mean just let me talk let's get to it yeah i know right (laughs) yes so janet tell us a little bit about yourself your background and your connection to audiology or the first time you had an encounter with audiology.
1: Sure, in fact, I I was thinking about that today. I remember the very first time I actually heard the term audiologist for some reason, whatever in the moment, I thought it meant foot doctor. So I remember (laughs) being really confused, Um, but my first encounter with an audiologist was actually at the time of my daughter, Sarah's, she was age two. And uh, she was actually in speech therapy, believe it or not. She had speech and language delays. She had had a hearing test, not a newborn hearing screening test, but a hearing test through kind of one set of processes. And she actually failed that. But I wasn't worried at the time about her hearing. I was worried about some other things going on with her. So I actually forgot that she failed the screening. Sort of a different story. But anyway, um, she ended up. Um, in speech therapy and we were I was sitting on the floor with a, the speech therapist and um, she said to me, you know, have you ever ruled out hearing loss? And I said, I don't think she has a hearing loss. And she said, well, why don't we just go ahead and get her screened just to make sure. So uh, the speech therapist referred me to the audiologist. The next week I came back to the speech therapist and she asked me, you know, how did it go? And I said, well, I didn't have time. And so this repeated itself a few weeks Weeks. And I, I actually talk about this encounter a little bit because I think about that uh, spe- that speech therapist's way she sort of, quote, handled me. She was really respectful. She never berated me, but she kept at it. And um, today, I think our conversation, in in my mind, thinking about how important relationships are between patients and clinicians or families and professionals, how, whatever words you want to use. So um, anyway, I eventually finally went and took our daughter to um, get screened by an audiologist. We went into the sound booth. Um, the audiologist did the test. We walked out and she said, I think there's something going on here. We need to do more testing. And I said to that audiologist, did you notice how Sarah was playing with her shoelace the whole time? Um, One thing I know about my daughter is she just really concentrates on things and just blocks out the world around her. So that was sort of my story of who Sarah was by the age of two when she wasn't responding to sound. And, you know, imagine if the audiologist said, no, that can't be right. You, You can't be right, mom. Um, but instead, she said, um, why don't you come back tomorrow if you would be willing and we'll do the test again. So I, my very first encounter with an audiologist in my mind was a pretty good one in that I felt like she listened to me and um, I, we did come back the next day. And sure enough, she Sarah felt, failed the screen again and then we were referred on to a diagnosing audiologist. So yeah, my very first encounter.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I am also very impressed gold stars for both the speech therapist and the audiologist who recognize that this is not just a, a transaction. It's actually a relationship and we need to work together and partner with the parents or the professionals for the benefit of the kids. Like That's what it's all about. And I recently just uh, wrapped up teaching intro to audiology for undergrads, and most of them are gonna continue on to speech. And I tell them, listen, you got to take this audiology course, and it's a very serious. Here's, you know, 45 points on the final. <laughs> One question. What do you have to have before, you know, before you start seeing a child for speech therapy? You must have a hearing test on file. You must, you must, you must, because you're gonna work on all these other things. You have to first either rule that out or in. <laughs> you just get an answer. And even if they pass newborn hearing screening, and even if there's no risk factors, if they come to speech therapy, we must put that on. And I just kept saying that week after week. And they got it right on the final. Yay. <laughs> yeah, that I love that. That is a great, yeah. that's and, a good And one. our collaboration yeah. too with speech therapists and, and audiologists, we're mm-hmm. all, everybody's working together for this.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one thing I would say about relationship building is it doesn't require a huge amount of time. I mean, if you think about the audiology and parent relationship of a young child, we probably will only see our audiologists in the beginning, you know, maybe weekly to monthly, but then pretty soon every six months. But you can establish from the very beginning this idea of equality of partnership or relationship. And I think the first thing is being listened to. And that vignette of the story of the audiologist saying to me, "Uh, something's wrong here. And me saying, yeah, but my daughter concentrates in her world. You know, when I look back and when I looked back, when she was diagnosed with her hearing loss, um, there were signs, of course, along the way. And there was part of the emotional process of coming to terms with this was sort of moving through whatever words you want to use, sort of denial or whatever, so that I could get to beginning to accept, accept Mm -hmm. it.
0: Yeah. I like to use the word disbelief because I think most people, I mean, obviously your experience, I'm not putting words in your mouth. Yeah. What I've seen from other families is that it's not that they don't believe you. It's more that they, they can't believe you. It's not like, it doesn't fit. It doesn't match with what they're seeing and their experience with their child or especially when they have nowadays, teeny tiny newborns, week old. Like this, what do you mean? Like the baby cries, they startle. A few months later, they babble. Like, so it's like, it's not that they're in denial. Like, nope, I'm not taking this in just putting up a big like blinders. It's more like, how can I believe you? I'm not sure. Like, what did you do? What was the testing? This whole automatic stickers thing, ABR, like, what did you do? And how, how do I know that what you're telling me is accurate? That's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Come Come to a
1: conference sometime when I'm speaking and I'll use that. I like that. It is. And it's interesting. The words we use often begin to define or, sort of reveal our attitude sort of relationally in that. And so um, I think about all the different audiologists that our, our daughter utilized over the years. Um, sometimes uh, we had both educational audiologists, clinical audiologists, sometimes our insurance coverage changed, so we had to switch audiologists. Um, so our experiences, of course, are kind of all over the place. And But I would say that almost every every experience that I can recall, I'll think, man, I, you know, our daughter is in her late 20s now in the professional world. And I think, how can I remember some of these incidences so clearly? It's because there was so much emotion attached to them. So, um, you know, I, I have a lot of, a lot of stories in my mind and stories of other families then that I've met over the years that, that begin to help me think about what, what true partnership looks like. I would
0: like to hear some of your stories. So the way I think uh, it's good to to set the stage for parents, especially new parents on this journey, on this path, that sometimes it's going to be great and you are going to have someone that you really relate to, that respects you, that has time for you. And other times you're going to have to advocate (laughs) and it's not going to go so smoothly. And you might not feel heard and you might feel dismissed, And, you know, whether or not the intention behind it is to, you know, I don't think anyone goes to work being like, who can I bother today? We're all kind of in a service oriented. We want to do our best, but it doesn't always match up with your expectations or, you know, people wake up on the wrong side of the bed. That does happen. (laughs) So yeah, tell us some of the good, the bad, hopefully. Hopefully not too
1: much ugly. (laughs) I'll even tell you the end of the story, which is... as a parent and for parents who are maybe newer listening to this your ability to speak out and advocate for your child does come a bit over time. You begin to understand and have confidence in your own understanding of your child. And it's cyclical because where I got that from was some of the really good professionals early on in our life that sort of, you know, sometimes we use the word empowerment, that this feeling of them being across from me saying, you are going to be the one that will be the most, have the most knowledge about your own daughter. So, you know, one of our profound moments and i think this is true for all parents is at the diagnosis of hearing loss um we went into an audiologist's office i had never met this woman before my husband was at work we'd been through a few screenings i for some reason and i remember thinking afterwards why didn't i have family with me when i made the appointment nobody said to me hey you might want to make sure you have someone with you um, for me, I was just kind of going through a series of appointments. I uh, Sarah was the youngest of three kids, all three under the age of five. <laughs> fun so. times,
0: yeah. That's actually my family makeup as well. I have I have a six, a four, and a two year old. They're a lot of fun. So. I'm in that story. Yeah. (laughs) So
1: you can, yeah, you can put yourself in my shoes for sure. So um, it's interesting because I've actually heard um, audiologists over the years talk about how the bearer of bad news will never be, you know, will, you you never really can make a, a true good partnership or relationship with families if you're the bearer of bad news. And I don't think that's true at all. I think Honestly, sometimes that's kind of used as an excuse when professionals don't know how to create good relationships with families. But in our case, the audiologist the the appointment itself, I don't remember a lot about it, except that I do remember the audiologist coming in. I still remember to this day how she began the sentence as she was sitting down. You know, this is a really hard part of my job. Um, And she went on to tell us that our daughter had um, sensorineural bilateral congenital hearing loss. How many years did it take me to be able to say that?
0: (laughs) That's so good.
1: She Mm -hmm. asked me whether she could put me me in touch with the next people i needed to be in touch with would i give her permission that other people could contact me and and you know within days around my phone i had you know little sticky notes of the people that began to contact me which i always really appreciated cuz it was nice to have someone to kind of help me into the quote system. But I I do remember my first emotional reactions really were um, standing outside afterwards with Sarah looking down at her and her life hadn't changed. But of course I was consumed with guilt because Sarah was two years old and I was thinking, how could I possibly as a mother not know this about her? And how am I gonna tell my mother-in-law she thinks her granddaughter is perfect? I had to go home and relay the news to my husband, and my husband had a million questions, which I did not get any written information, and I couldn't really remember, so he was frustrated. But in general, that relationship, that initial relationship with that audiologist, um, because I I feel in retrospect, she was um, kind with the information, she was there for me. I I have heard families share the story. One family told me um, they were from Russia. They were um, going through the testing with their son. And they were standing in the hallway. And the doctor walked up, handed them a piece of paper, and said, your son is profoundly deaf, turned around and walked away. And so if you look about all the ways that this news is delivered to families, families will have all kinds of stories. Almost every family will remember the moment. Um, I think um, kindness, I think being there, I I do remember our audiologist sort of sitting and waiting, not just keep throwing information at me. I mean, one thing I'll tell audiologists, audiologists will often talk about, well, we don't want to give families too much information. They need to process emotionally or they'll give everything and then families are overwhelmed. And I always say, and when people ask me, well, how much is too much or how much should we give? The way you find out is ask the family across from you, are you getting too little or too much information? And let families kind of guide guide that
0: process. Oh, that is so, so powerful. I, I often, when, when I talk to other audiologists about this too, we, I'm like, do you talk to people in your life? Like, have you ever had a conversation that maybe was challenging besides for this? Like we have those tools. We, we've had difficult conversations, hopefully, I think, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe we make this whole thing like a big, how do you do this? It's un- impenetrable to learn how to deliver this news when it's gonna depend on who's in front of you and what they know and what they don't yeah. know. It's gonna depend on how many testing appointments they've had. Are they ready? Are they not? Do they have other people in their family who are deaf or don't? Like I remember a story where, uh, I had done an ABR, it was profound, absolutely no responses on the ABR. And you know, as an audiologist, you're going higher and higher and raising it and, ra- and there's no response, no response. You kind of, how, okay, here it comes. And then I sit in front of them and the mom's like, so is it profound? And I actually was like helping another audiologist. I like walked in, so it wasn't, I didn't get the full case history. Honestly, that wasn't such a good setup, but um, she was like, yeah, this is our fourth kid. And they had three children that were profoundly deaf. This was number four. She was like, yeah, 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 we have a surgeon. I have his number in my phone. We're good. You know, just give me the results, like pass me the paper. So that's a totally different story than sometimes when you're dealing with a mild hearing loss with someone who's like, this is earth shattering news. And it is for them. So you can't, you know, the audiogram is nothing. The person, the person, the family, the kid, that's what's happening here.
1: Yeah, that's really good. And I, I think some of the dynamic going on, like I, I like how you at, sort of asked that question, why wouldn't we understand that this is kind of a conversation between two people? I think part of the dynamic is the role, this idea, and in different cultures, you have listeners from all over the world, there's different dynamics set up about the physician and the patient and, and people's understanding and beliefs around that, that that the patient is expected to listen, the, the physician physician is expected to be the authority on this, and any crack in that would somehow be perceived as, you know, lack of expertise by the parent and so I think the dynamic of kind of a tightrope walk of you do want the person across from you who's a professional to look like they're competent, and yet, honesty and, and this goes in a little bit about parents feeling of the ability to ask questions and get honest replies from the professionals that are serving them you know you can kind of tell when you ask a question and they kind of fake it the answer they don't really know versus a professional who would be really honest and say you know i don't really know the answer to that let me find out for you and i'll get back to you i mean one example of why this is important is there's study after study that parents are reporting to audiologists that hearing aids are in their kids' ears more than they actually are, because now audiologists have the ability to test it, and, you know, they can they can monitor the hours of use. I remember the first time I heard that, that that was coming out, I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> 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 well, how much are you keeping your child's hearing aid in? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, I have a mm-hmm. friend who, her 10-month-old, she said, oh, yeah, I can keep my son's hearing aids and all the time, as long as I'm sitting across from him, his little chair, and I don't do laundry or take care of my other children or feed the family. But so, right, so the relationship is built on trust. So one of the stories that's really hard for me in my life was a moment we were in an audiologist's office, and it wasn't the first encounter I'd had with this audiologist, and I, I just always felt sort of that feeling of not quite trusting, and I don't know exactly what it was, but But that particular day, she wanted to do an ear probe on our daughter and and the minute she tried to do it, Sarah started screaming, saying it hurt. And um, she told me I had to hold Sarah down and she said, this is how it's done. We have to get this done. And I remember it so vividly because Maybe if that had happened two years later, I would have said no. This should not hurt. This is not how it's done. But I didn't know, so I complied with that, and I still remember the feeling of my gut instinct saying, "This is not right." You know, I should not be doing this, and yet I let the audiologist do that, and really caused our daughter pain. And and later, then, as soon as I asked anyone else, they said, "No, it should not have hurt like that." And you know, another time where an audiologist did the hearing test and then um, Sarah's about eight. And she said, you know, Sarah, why don't you go out while I talk to your mom? And so my heart started pounding um, because I thought the audiologist was going to tell me something really bad. And and this happened to be a space where, you know, there was glass and then Sarah was actually on the other side of the glass. Kind of, You could see this worried look on her face. And she's about eight at the time. And the audiologist, she sat back in her chair and she said, well, everything seems to be okay. And I'm like, why did you send my daughter out of the room? And then I think every family probably has stories of this idea. And those kind of stories to me are reflective of the equality of partnership and the way audiologists would be able to ascertain what that means to the family across from them is by asking them questions, by saying, do you want your daughter here while we talk about this? Do you want them out? You know, things like
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful that you, you share it. Cause someone else might say those things, they're so little, they're so insignificant. That has nothing to do with the clinical care. Right. And it's like, it has everything to do with the clinical care. And as an audiologist to realize things like, um, if you come out of the testing booth and, and check your phone, check your texts. Like I, I remember very consciously not doing that. It's like, this is not boring. This is not like, Oh, I finished this. I got to Check in on my other things. Like for the family, this half hour is significant. They will remember it years and years later. They're anxious. They want to know what's happening. And for you, it's your next half hour of your day. But you have to be conscious of that. And what you said before also about the cultural aspect, for sure, different cultures, different countries will have different power dynamic with authority and how much people can say But I also, even within that, I think there's always a little bit of extra room of who's the squeaky wheel and who's gonna ask a question or just like accept everything. Absolutely.
1: Um, I, I have had the fortune of meeting families from all over the world from a lot of different cultures where you could sit down and look at the power dynamics of culturally and yet, When you talk about kind of that room, I have also in that context, families understand that they are the ones ultimately that are going to lead their to their children's success or not. And especially when they have the opportunity to be around other families and begin to understand their role as parents. And I, you were talking a little bit earlier about the appointment itself, like what the appointment mean, meant to me as a parent and you as a clinician. You know, that also leads to what what's going to happen during that appointment. Um, clinicians often have, oh, today is a hearing aid test. We're going to test the hearing aids. We're going to, um, you know, we're going to do this test and that. And I have 20 minutes and it's pretty clear from my boss i have 20 minutes blah 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 well i think one of the things that's really important to understand is that um it's important when families come through the door to say what is it that you you want or need to get out of today and that really sets a great thing because Often just saying, um, "Do you have any questions?" at the end isn't exactly the opening that families need towards getting to the real question. Because you know, sometimes the question is, you know, I just haven't been outside the house because I keep getting asked in the market, "What are those things in your baby's ears, and why would you put them in your in your baby's ears?" and um, you know, things like that. Oh, what do you
0: mean? It's just AirPods. Like, doesn't your baby wear AirPods? Oh, please.
1: that's right. <laughs> so those are the kind of Things where when you when you can come into an appointment, and there's actually a great resource um, called the What Else checklist for audiologists that was developed by both parents and audiologists, talking about what are some of the other things an audiologist should think about before, during, and after the appointment, besides just the clinical work that maybe you're you're thinking about. And having to do. And, you know, I, I can tell you, I can just tell by your personality that you're one of those people that have a, sort of some of the natural gifts towards relationship building. And so I would say even audiologists who don't, who find that difficult can learn and grow in that. So I've seen audiologists over the years really move kind of from that idea of, well, I'm supposed to be the expert and that's the patient, they should just listen to me, to real listeners of people's stories and understanding that um, it's not about will the patient comply with my treatment recommendations versus how can I create an opportunity in this short visit to make sure the family has ownership. I can tell you it's not going to be as effective of just telling parents what to do as meeting parents where they're at so that you can get through some of the barriers and help parents
0: uh, move forward. Wow. I also... I'd love to hear your, your take on, on this issue, I guess, which is there is such a limited clinical time and there are very important clinical things. Like you need a booth to do a hearing test and you need software and all the other tech gizmos and gadgets that we have, all of our wires. And, and so there is a conflict from the clinical side of time, especially in hospital setting where you really have high volume and at the same time you want to still incorporate these things, I have thought that there can be room for those other things to happen also outside of a clinical encounter. Some of the work that I do is one-on-one personally like like this on Zoom with families around the world. And then I do talk to them about their relationship to their mother-in-law and about how to explain this hearing loss to your child's teacher And we do some of that counseling as a separate tangential element to their care. And, and I think that, you know, we do want to integrate it and it would be amazing if every clinical encounter included all this, but it also doesn't necessarily have to, and you can get support from hands and voices and other support organizations and peer groups and audiologists who are doing counseling and informational counseling outside of their role or educational audiology at their school. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I completely agree with you. And I I think before we leave the clinical moment, those 30 minutes, I I think you can, by establishing trust and relationship, it's amazing what you can get even in a short period of time. And so I think it's always worth the effort to to think about, I mean, some really simple things like um, not asking yes, no questions, that asking probing questions that require a family to think about and talk about, um, giving families a list of questions they might want to ask you, there's some good tools out there, the question prompt list that was led by Dr. Chris English, they're, you know, different, we we have other resources that we do. But but back to your point, if you think about what families need and where they get it from, I think of five major categories, which is family to family support, deaf, hard of hearing to family support. Um, there's nothing like hearing it straight from people who've experienced this to get some insight. Um, professionals in our lives, including audiologists um, and other the other network of professionals, um, our existing community, we don't come into this as a blank slate, so some of our support often comes from um, religious, family, other places, and then just information and resources, podcasts, books, all those kind of things. So look at that breadth of where we can get support. But I think the important part about that is our audiologists connected to those other things so that you don't take it upon yourself that you mm-hmm. have to give everything the family needs in order to to get them where they need to go. And I've had the privilege of being a part of an interdisciplinary audiology clinic where they had me as the parent there to do parent-to-parent support in the clinic-based setting throughout a family's day, and where there were a lot of different eyes on that family. And that was really, a that, that was a pretty powerful experience. And just being with families as they move through professional appointments throughout the day and how, you know, an example of that is one family came in and all morning, they'd been with all the other different um, professionals and, and we had sort of a clinic meeting at lunch and they were I was getting ready to meet the family. And I'm like, the, the family's just so quiet. They just won't ask any questions. They don't, you know, they're they're pretty passive. I don't know how involved they are. They just don't really have much to say. So I said, look, I'm a parent. I'm not going to give you any medical advice. I'm here just as another parent who's been through it. And I said, you know, do you have any questions? And the mom leaned forward in a chair she said, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. So here was a mom that couldn't quite, in the context to those other meetings, bring herself forward because, for whatever reason, she felt connected to me as maybe a non-authoritarian. She was able to start pouring out her heart about mm-hmm. the questions that she had, and so yeah, I think, I think it's important for families to know that you're going to get um, really good information from that broad broad base of professionals, other deaf, hard of hearing adults, other families, and then for professionals, wherever you Mm -hmm. happen to land, to make sure you know where to send a family to a good um, family-to-family encounter, or where deaf and hard of hearing adults that know how to share their story without telling a family what to do, um, what they think that family should do, is really important.
0: Wow. So having the right referral network. Yes. And you mentioned that right at the start that your audiologist said, can I get you in touch with the next right. next person in this chain to tell you you're not yeah. alone? And then you had all those post-its, which I think is such a great visual. <laughs> post-its around the phone. I don't think we have that anymore. It's I like don't think so. little text message bubbles. <laughs> I'm, I'm aging myself a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, millennial audiologist over here. But yeah, I think definitely we can do more in the way of connecting with your community. And I think I also worked as an educational audiologist for a bit. And for me, that was very eye-opening yes. to say, oh, this is what community uh, engagement looks like, meeting the parents five times over the year. At, right. you know, the beginning and the holiday party and the yeah. this night and science fair and whatever else. So it's like, I know these families in a very different way than when it's a clinical patient right. encounter. Yeah. So that I was like, ah, I, I see now <laughs> mm-hmm. more of the, you know, you could just say, oh, you need an FM. But I was there in the classroom teaching the teachers how to use it and why it mattered. So right. there are different roles that different professionals will take. And then Even bigger, the teachers, the teachers of the deaf, their other team, even their OT and PT. Yeah, and you know, sometimes
1: it's okay like for a family to ask the exact same question to all all those different people cuz you'll get a little different perspective. And like I was just gung ho man when Sarah was about aid in education, making sure she had access and I was like the advocate in the classroom and I have this deaf friend that says said to me, "You know, I don't really remember any of the projects I did in elementary school. I just remember being um in the girls bathroom with my feet up hiding from my next you know, speech therapy appointment or whatever. And that just like sort of went to my heart. Like, I need to let my kid be a kid. This can't just be about is the FM technology working and are people using it? It was like just that one little snippet of
0: a story always stuck with me as well. So Trauma-informed. Yeah. Trauma-informed parenting and trauma-informed clinical care. Just to say like, how is this child feeling in the moment? And what are our goals which one wins out you know <laughs> there's a reason we want them to use the fm yep. and that reason would be to have access to to communication access to education and like you know develop language but what if that, that in itself is hindering those goals ah and <laughs> i have a question it's always complicated mm-hmm. and
1: i think in in general um when it comes to accessibility and Technology and education, it's something families really do need to um, advocate for. And I have a pretty clear understanding. Um, I think one of the one audiology experience I had was. Um, the audiology asked me if i understood background noise and i i didn't even know what she was talking about like i just assumed basically what sarah's audiogram said was pretty much how she heard throughout her day and so i didn't really have a sense of the difference between what sarah was receiving in a quiet classroom versus the cafeteria and so the audiologist, we were having this conversation and the audiologist said well you know come on in the sound booth let me just you know show you a little bit and she did a little background noise and then had sarah answer all of a sudden i was sitting there and I could see how much Sarah was struggling in background noise and how that understanding and knowledge really helped me to understand that I can't just send her to school uh, the, without without advocating that she has good access in whatever environment she's in. And that was kind of a result of someone asking me whether we wanted to use the FM system at school. And I'm like, nah, I don't think she needs it. And so it was, it was that understanding and knowledge of what the impact of of um, it, background noise was
0: that that really helped me. That was good. And to demonstrate it that you, she yes. demonstrated so that you understood and internalized and didn't just right. get the data. Like, well, the yeah. data says, the research says, it's like, yeah. okay, so or here's the autogram, <laughs> And yeah, I want to know what that means for my kid implications on yeah. their functioning. So good. Yes. Okay. And then, mm-hmm. One of the things that I really, really appreciate about Hands and Voices is In The Name, which is about being open to all modalities and roots. And one of the big, I think, points of tension that families come in this whole story is kind of some of the politics and some of the very loud voices on their Facebook in, in either direction that are just like, you know, they pop in and they're like, ah, I'm new here. This is like, what's what do we do? This is all new. And then the comment section is just like, you better not do that. You better not do that. This is bad. This is terrible. This is worse. And it's like, whoa, everybody. Uh, so, <laughs> What's some of your advice to families who are in that stage and how to deal like coming into this new world?
1: Yes. I think um, one of my first aha moments was, oh, everything everyone says to me may not necessarily be based in 30 or 40 years of research. It may just be their opinion. (laughs) But as a newbie, I mean, 90 to 95% of parents are hearing people that don't have a lot of background in this. So everything everyone said to me, I just took at face value. In fact, it happened to me in a single period in a single workshop where one person came up to me and said, you know, if you ever Sign to your child; she'll never learn to speak. And um, somebody else said to me, "If you don't sign to your child, she's going to grow up and leave you oh. and oh. hate you." And I, I just, I it ended. It resulted in me being in the bathroom sobbing. This was like my first encounter, actually, at any sort of conference about hearing loss um, or deafness, and. Somebody walked by me in the bathroom and looked at me and said you shouldn't be crying deafness isn't a bad thing. So I remember going, I'm sorry. Okay, I won't cry. And then somebody else who walked by put their hand on my shoulder and just said everything's going to be okay. Isn't it funny that I remember that moment in the in the bathroom but um, to answer your question look, if research could prove that there was one method, mode, language, communication, for every child who is deaf or hard of hearing in whatever context, you would think we would probably know it by now. And in fact, it's an individualized experience with success and failure across the board. If you start saying that the only way to success is for all children to have their base primary language as American Sign Language or Sign Language, whatever context or country and unit, and that is the only way to success, or that we're living in a hearing world and the only way a deaf person can be successful is through hearing, listening, and talking, um, you're missing the diverse, rich experience of deaf and hard of hearing, healthy, wonderful adults across that spectrum. And for me as a parent, what brought me freedom was for her to be a healthy, functioning, communicative adult who could live independently, And had a sense, a healthy sense of who she was. And, and I, as I began to meet successful deaf and hard of hearing adults across the spectrum, I began less and less consumed with whether she would quote, talk or not, whether she could talk or listen, because honestly, as a hearing person, that was probably my first question when all this is like, is she going to be able to talk? That wasn't a question of of modality preference as much as my only understanding of language is like yeah they you talk to your baby and then they start talking that was my language question really but as i emerged with good supports from a lot of different professionals my goal i began to and when i say i i always mean to mention my husband he did apparently play a part in this journey our our decision making process what i what i would tell parents is is take as much information as you can. Don't don't get caught up in the idea that that those either maybe will even tell you what to do, that just that have the freedom of somebody might tell you something and just say, "You know what? I'm going to take that. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to look at it and say does this apply to our life, our situation, our child? If not, I'm going to let it go." I think it's good listening to people's stories. But but overall, finding your way to language success, you know, I remember being really struck by someone who said, you know, I don't really, it's not really about whether my child can say it or sign it, but can they wake up in the morning and explain their dream to me, that they you know, that they were dreaming? And to me, I think that stuck with me as a deeper level language mm-hmm. process conversation. So it wasn't like just building vocabulary words. It was like, Will my daughter acquire language, the rich experience of 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 fellowship and friendship and our family will be will we be able to talk Mm -hmm. about politics and religion and trust me we're able to around here (laughs) we have have a really diverse family in those ways and so um so though that's that the idea that we're going to get to success and the modality and the language or or technology by which we get there is important and imperative because it will lead to the pathway of success but just being open to what is going to be, what is going to work for my child? And, you know, that's our motto at Hands of Voices is what works for your child is what makes the choice right. Yet I, as the parent and the decision maker early on, had to have the experience of people around me who gave me the freedom to kind of explore and begin to understand what it would mean for our family and and for Sarah, and, and honestly, this is never a one decision moment point. You have to start somewhere. I mean, people will say, don't put so much pressure on the parents. Let them do it all and figure it out. I mean, I'm not trying to use a voice that's sarcastic about that, but that in itself is a choice to use all different kinds of modalities or methods. So I think at Hands and Voices, I've experienced families across the spectrum who Pretty much went out the gate. Didn't know deafness, but had an affinity towards American Sign Language and signing, and just went that route um, and all the way to families who who really chose um, um, using listening and spoken language. Did not incorporate sign language at all and found success. And then, of course, everything in the middle. Um, and I think no, I think for me not, uh, at that particular time, both freedom and mm-hmm. fear ruled me i was afraid to make the wrong choice what if we make the wrong choice and sarah will be a failure will be a failure as parents and the freedom part for me was no choice is set in stone you're going to find your way and the beauty of it is you make the best choices you can based on good information and input and then this beautiful thing happens. Your child begins to emerge and have something to say for themselves about what's working for them. And so I, I've i loved the journey of that. And the part that the audiologists have played in my life with that was understanding how in context to technology, whether, whether and how technology was working for Sarah, whether um, whether or not, um, and being able to, to listen. Um, moving transitioning from audiology appointments being about me my interaction with the audiologist to primarily the audiologist's interaction with Sarah that that is a little bit of a transition because you do as you move along and you're the decision maker and people are asking you and looking to you and they need input from you how your child is doing you get you sort of get a sense in that seat and it is the parent that understands that that seat was never for them in the first place it was for them until their child can take that on themselves you know and 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 in one audiology encounter really helped me with that and that was the audiologist modeling in an appointment for me this this sort of shift from asking me all the questions to really asking Sarah the questions as they were going through the hearing aid usage. And I re, I, I'm one of those people that do remember a lot of moments in our journey and being in that audiologist's office and kind of sort of sitting back and realizing this, it's more important that the audiologists hear what Sarah has to say than what I have to say. Because I was kind of biting the urge to actually talk Um, But I do remember in that encounter and then subsequently on um,
0: realizing, oh, audiology appointments are really for Sarah to make sure things are working. Okay. Listen, everything you just said is just so moving and about taking all these years, this whole long experience and all the families you've worked with. And, and coming down to say, there is no right answer, people. <laughs> and even when you've made the decision yeah. that does work for your family, that does fit with your values and your goals, well, maybe you'll change it in a few years when they have their input and they want something else. And then maybe a few years after that, and they become adults again, and they'll say, you know, that didn't work out so well for me. But you did do what you knew at the time. And and one of the strong images I had right. of you in that In that bathroom, as you're like, one person said this, then one person said this, then one person, and you, and you cried. And that's part of it. Like, you're going to (laughs) cry. This is a very overwhelming, big decision. And here's the truth for everybody is that parenting is this thing that you don't know the future. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when you have this experience, specifically in the deaf and hard of hearing journey, you at least know the questions. Whereas, you know, right. in general, you might not know which questions you're asking because you're just kind of juggling everything all the time. And here there's more focus on yep. what's the language and access and connection. So yeah, uh, it's an interesting place to be. <laughs> no, you're right. I'm, I'm resonating with what you're saying and thinking
1: about, like I often talked about that transition stage when Sarah was moving from really us as the primary decision makers to beginning our partnership with her to help in context, her age, kind of understanding and helping her process things then to that stepping back. But I often say, man, by the time I figured out all the context for this experience, cultural identity, technology, language, speech, the spiritual context for this, all of the sudden she had to go through that for herself and begin to define what this experience is for her and what a joy. And to me, the, our experience of being able to do that stemmed from the early days that we did not get stuck in that idea that the answer is back to the communication methods or modes or languages, like, like the only way to say success is A, B, or C. And, and some of the bad stories that families will tell about the professionals sitting across from them, those professionals sitting in that in their seat as a professional telling a parent that their only choice is this, you must get a cochlear implant for your child, or you must or You know a a parent visiting a school and the school telling them if you send your child to a mainstream setting they will be isolated and lonely for the rest of their lives. Neither of those things may or may not be true for a family or a child and and the really difficult things for families is when a professional says it, it does carry weight because especially early on i i've always said the ability to manipulate a parent early on is pretty easy because we are living in a through a lot of fear and and trying to get the information. And, And I love audiologists who are unbiased. What I mean by that is you would think that audiologists whose job itself is to bring technology and audition to the world of children, that is their clinical expertise. That's why we go to those professionals. And yet I do believe audiologists can settle in their minds and hearts and their philosophy and the way they interact with families is that, that at the end of the day, their clinical expertise will be applied to that particular child in context to the family's decision and families who've had to hide from audiologists that they're signing with their children. It's, you know, those are the kind of stories you just go, you know, the world is not right if, if this is
0: where we're at and families having to kind of navigate that. Wow. Context yeah. is everything. And I think another analogy for our entire conversation today is also something many people go through in pregnancy, where you're gonna start to hear everybody's mm-hmm. horror stories of their 28 hour labor and this thing and that thing and and emergency this and and all the people who kind of had a pleasant, smooth supported birth they're not necessarily sharing their story that loudly because they're just fine yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah and you're yeah. gonna have professionals who say epidural is a must and other people who say don't you dare use medication and it's like mm-hmm. this is not the first area of the world where there's conflict <laughs> among professionals right. <laughs> right so it is also part of your your journey and some people are high risk and some people it's you know multiple births and like there's other factors that you're juggling in decisions like that. So that's maybe an analogy to carry for this where there's open, there's like an openness that you get to have in the world. Oh my gosh, Janet, I think we could yeah. talk for like three more hours. All right. No, but- <laughs> just it's always
1: about how long can the listener listen? I've <laughs> often thought to myself in rooms where people are, I'm like, I bet I could just keep going for eight hours. And then I'm like, yeah, but I think the audience would <laughs> leave before I'm done.
0: Okay. But I will ask you our final question here. Even though we've been doing this all yes. along, I would like to hear if you have any pointed advice for our listeners both on the family side and the professional side and and that, and what you wish, what you wish more people would know. I'll start with the professionals. Um,
1: I think in general, almost every professional I've met is, and you've said this earlier, isn't doing this to get up in the morning and say, how can I cause harm in the world today? Obviously you're you're doing yeah. work and, and especially in pediatric audiology or um, across from families and the idea that you want to help them. And, and so I think um, having the freedom to individualize your your work with families by spending a, a tiny bit of time knowing who is across from you um, it drives me crazy that. That often clinicians go through their day and they don't even know the person's name, the next patient's name. You don't even take the time to look down and see who's coming in and asking that parent, how would you like to be called today and not calling the, the parent mom. Sorry, that's a little of my pet peeves. Hey, mom. I remember the first time a professional yeah. did that. I thought she was talking about her mother. And I'm
0: like, what is she talking about? <laughs> You're like, behind, looking behind your shoulder, like what? <laughs> but I, yeah. So,
1: yeah. So I would say the way you individualize is by making sure you know the families. You've looked at the charts. Look, I know everyone's super busy. and But just to settle that in your mind, in your profession, in your career, that you are going to take the time to, to think about what the last encounter was, what... What be by looking at one of these checklists and say today I'm going to ask the family when they come in. What is it you want to make sure you've leave the door with before we get into it, you know, you can do that really quickly. So just individualizing care and then being honest, Um, yeah, that will take you a million miles if you don't know the answer to a question or even a question asks you a pointed question where you it's opinion question, don't automatically give that answer as a fact. Just say, you could say, well, in my clinical opinion, but you might get some other advice, but things like decision-making around communication modes or not, like family were to ask an audiologist, do you think I should sign with my child or not? I don't think that audiologist should answer that question. I think they should say, that's a good question for you to explore. I'm I where what I can tell you what I know about, you know, the technology questions, but let me give you some other people to talk to about that or whatever. Um, so honesty would be one, you know the thing, and then um, um, individualizing. For families um, to know that many professionals will be coming in and out of your life and that the constant as your child is growing is you and take every experience, good or bad, and don't, when you have a bad experience, don't let that become the pillar in your life. Learn from it. Maybe say to yourself, I'll I'll never, I'll never let that happen again to my child. Or I remember dad called me on the phone once, hands of voice. He's like, we're thinking of firing our audiologist. Do you think that's okay? And I remember just the way he phrased that question. I'm like, oh Yeah. We're the consumer. We have that right of being able to do that. So for parents to understand and know, build your knowledge, know your child better than anyone. When you know your child, stand up for them. The person watching you the most is your child. A mom told me a story the other day, Um, that her son um, kept complaining in first grade that he kept hearing music through his cochlear implant and the whole team came around him and the psychologist suggested that maybe um, he needed to see a psychologist and this mom, trusted, believed in her son, and also knew her son. And he was a kid with spe- extra special needs. And she just would not back down. She knew that there was something to this, that it wasn't a psychological thing It was in her gut. And she went to her clinical audiologist, sure enough, the cochlear implant somehow was picking up a radio station or something. Her son was not crazy. She was not crazy. So parents, trust your instincts. Learn, learn from others. Be open to others who are not like your child. If you only use spoken and listening, don't be afraid to listen to the stories of deaf adults who, who are only use sign language and vice versa. Um, it's you just take the stories of people's lives, and then you can put them in context. So that's, that's great. That's my advice for families. I love
0: that. I think uh, the, um, the thing that I sometimes offer is that as audiologists, you do not try to make the patients or their families into audiologists. They are the family and, and the family, this person who's your audiologist is not coming to your barbecue you know, they're, they have a role. There is different roles here and we work together. You're the expert in your expertise of whatever you trained in teacher, audiologist, speech pathologist, doctor, whatever. And you're the expert in being a parent and being that kid's parent. There's still two distinct roles here, but, but yeah,
1: that's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) That's good.
0: I'm so grateful. So excited to talk to you. And I feel like, you know, have you listened to the show? You, you're taking all my lines, like. No. You know, that's how I felt about
1: you, and I don't usually say that about audiologists. So <laughs> take that as a compliment. Thank you, thank you. I have a I have a story I'd like to close with. Um, Please. It to me it, it epitomizes sort of the full circle our family life has come in our concept and context of the deaf experience, in our in our daughter's life in our own life. Um, we were, my middle daughter, I have, I don't always mention this, I have two hearing daughters. Um, my middle daughter was pregnant at the time, and we were all standing in the kitchen talking about the birth experience, and that she was, her ba- the new baby was going to be screened for hearing, and so I jokingly said, well, if I miss the birth, that's all right, just do not go down the hall to get the screening until I'm there, because I really <laughs> want to see what they say and do, and so we were laughing, and here's my daughter, Danielle, and almost nine months pregnant, just glowing, getting ready to give birth. And our daughter, Sarah, who's deaf, was standing there. And, and just, we were all part of that conversation. And uh, Danielle looked over at Sarah and said, wouldn't it be great if my baby was deaf? And you just should have seen the look on Sarah's face. And I still get emotional about it. And if you've heard me talk before, I've been telling this story a few times, because it still comes back for me, that moment in our family's life that deafness has not diminished our world or our lives or our family it's in so many ways enhanced it and I'm not taking away the hard days that have happened for my daughter's life and some of the struggle and challenges she has and yet at the end of the day this this life journey is something we wouldn't trade for the world and I love the reflection of that in my
0: um, hearing daughter's voice, and so I'll leave today with that. That is amazing. Okay, so we have to do a part two, (laughs) I think, about how you instilled that in your hearing daughters and the balance of the siblings, because one gets services and one has something about them and the other two don't, and I want to pick your brain more. I would love to do that and I would probably
1: start with the, the biggest regret I have in my whole life's journey is some of the outcomes that happened in the sibling relationship. So it's probably would be, more it might surprise you, maybe more of a failure-based conversation from my point of view, and yet it, it turned out okay. But yeah, the sibling conversation and my two hearing daughters now as adults are wonderful at being able to talk about the really hard parts of our family's past in context to the sibling experience that I couldn't hear when they were, when they were younger and because of my own also sort of need to protect myself around whether I failed or not in that area was really hard. Um that so yeah it's a it's a great conversation. I love I love talking
0: about it. Oh, thank you. There's no failure, just yeah. lessons, lessons learned. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, Janet, if people would like to uh, learn more about Hands and Voices, Google it and your state's name. Um, and if they want to reach you, is that is that a possibility? Absolutely. You can reach me at Janet
1: at handsandvoices.org. And um, I think that'll be in the transcript, or however you, you share that. I did mention some resources today. I'm going to send you, so if you want to include those in somehow to the listener, um, those are great. I, I love sharing resources and information. I think um, it's really. You know, if half the people would use half the resources half the time, (laughs) um, our kids would be doing twice as good because there's so many good resources out there. So thank you very much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah.